me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace, more connectivity but less connection, more information but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast. So it took me getting good enough at it to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that. Have you the will and determination to do anything about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your co-host Kyle Tibbetts, joined by my fellow co-host Alex Kahn. Alex and I actually go way back. We met at age 16, working as congressional pages in the U.S. House of Representatives and have been great friends ever since. A little background on me, I've worked in Silicon Valley for over 10 years doing marketing for a number of different startups. I'm a husband, father to a one-year-old daughter, and family is super important. There are really two reasons why I wanted to start this podcast. First, Alex and I have been talking about how society's become this place where there's certain things you can't really say, there's certain people you're not supposed to talk to, certain ideas you can't fully debate, and we think that's fundamentally wrong. We strongly believe in the marketplace of ideas and want this to be a space where we explore a wide range of perspectives. Second, we live in this paradoxical, somewhat strange time where For example, we have abundance in certain areas of life in the modern world, and it actually leads to scarcity in related aspects of our lives, and we want to go deep on those topics when we can. Ultimately, we want this podcast to be a series of conversations with bold, independent thinkers who will really open our minds, expand the way we think, and hopefully do the same for anyone listening. Alex, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey everyone, my name is Alex Kahn. I currently work in the California State Legislature. I'm focused on healthcare policy. Little bit of background, I'm an attorney and I've worked in politics pretty much since I was uh, eight years old. One of the reasons I really wanted to do this with Kyle is over the 16 or so years that we've known each other, we've always been able to disagree in a, in a friendly way. And recently we were talking about how that's kind of missing in our society. And we realized more and more people are forming tribes of folks who are like-minded, who agree with them, not really challenging their own beliefs. And so what we're really setting out to do is have conversations with extraordinary folks from all different fields who will hopefully expand the way we think, expand our point of view, and maybe have that impact on our audience as well. Now that we've got intros out of the way, let's get to today's conversation. Many of you probably have a strong opinion of lobbyists, and if you're like most Americans, chances are that opinion isn't a very favorable one. Today we're going to be challenging what you think you know about lobbyists and exploring the positive impact a good one can have on our world. For episode number two, we got to sit down with Jennifer Fearing in her Sacramento office right across the street from the California State Capitol. Jennifer is one of the most successful, innovative, and admired lobbyists in California. She left a lucrative corporate consulting career to advocate on behalf of issues close to her heart. Jennifer successfully ran the 2008 Proposition 2 campaign, also known as the Prevention of Farm Animal Cruelty Act. She's led successful efforts to ban the sale of ivory and shark fin soup, to ban the use of hounds when hunting, and championed numerous other issues related to animal welfare. 
Jennifer spent eight years working for the Humane Society of the United States, and in 2014 founded Fearless Advocacy, a lobbying firm dedicated to advocating the public policy agendas of causes she believes in. Clients include Pew Charitable Trusts, Pesticide Action Network, Defenders of Wildlife, the California Association of Nonprofits, Oceana, California Wildlife Officers Foundation, and more. A graduate of UC Davis and Harvard's Kennedy School, Jennifer has been featured on the Capital 100, an annual list of the most impactful people in and around California government. Jennifer can be found on Twitter at Jennifer Fearing. So if you'd like to connect with her after the conversation, you can follow her there. We had a lot of fun with this one and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Jennifer, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. So Jennifer, that was a very impressive bio. I guess to start things off, I'd love to hear about your background, your upbringing, and I guess really the backstory on how the Jennifer and that biography came about. Well, fair to call it nonlinear. Um, definitely didn't like chart a course to land here at any point in time. Um, so that's a that's a tip for those aspiring up their career ladders that you're highly likely if you just sort of follow your nose to um, end up in places you did not count on. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is, I think, perfectly valid. Um, So I, I have taken on California as my home. I moved here for college. I'm an Air Force brat. So I grew up all over the country, uh, primarily in Bellevue, Nebraska, a suburb of Omaha where I was super into my church and music, and I definitely wasn't on a path uh, to where I am today. I I was involved in politics already. I was a volunteer for Bob Dole for president and primary in 1988. Wow. Um, And, uh, yep, then my dad, who was a a pilot in the U.S. Air Force, was transferred to McClellan during my senior year of high school. So Mm -hmm. I ended up applying to UCs because military kids get instant residency and... Uh, within a few weeks of being in California, I wondered, hmm, what, why didn't everyone live here? <laughs> Turns out most people do, but <laughs> a very high number do. But anyway, I have um, really recla- you know, kind of claimed Northern California since then as my, my chosen home. Well, the LA Times had a really interesting article about you, and it talked about your previous career. You were in the corporate world. You were doing really well, making lots of money. And then there was a stray dog who kind of changed the course of your life. Can you talk about that? I know it sounds funny, but it's still accurate. Like all these years later, that was a really pivotal, pivotal moment. Everything that's happened since kind of flowed from that. Um, yeah, so I was uh, working as con- uh, an economist for a consulting firm first in L.A. and then up here in Sacramento. And primarily my job was to calculate damages and estimates in large scale kind of corporate litigation cases. So I even worked on some fairly famous class action cases like Microsoft when they were accused mm-hmm. of, of monopolizing the operating system market. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there were uh, there was a large lawsuit uh, alleging that um, music companies had fixed the price of CDs. Remember those CDs? So I um, found it really super interesting as someone who had gone to public policy school but danced repeatedly with the idea of going to law school. I'd kind of landed in a place that put me squarely in the part of litigation and law, legal work that I liked, um, the kind of like number crunching um, economic side of it. So it was it was fantastic work. I found it super interesting and it changed really frequently and it kind of um, ebbed and flowed. And I just, I liked the pace of it quite a lot and was making my way. 
when a friend of mine and I were in North Sacramento, actually, uh, looking for beater bikes at the Del Paso thrift store and came across this Akita mixed dog. And I had I had had dogs on and off growing up, but I wouldn't have called myself an animal person. Most most animal people's story starts with, oh, I was always bringing home every now that really wasn't what my life you know, story had been, my life connection with animals. But we picked up this dog and my friend said, you know, we have to take this dog to the shelter. And I was like, what's the shelter? Like literally no connection to mm-hmm. that uh, at all. And we went down, it was a Sunday afternoon and they had this thing called night drop. Cause so that when they were closed and it was basically like these big airport lockers, you know, metal locker, you kind of like put a dog in, it was a cage on the backside, but on the front, it was just like this metal door and you sort of put this animal in and like, and I just couldn't stop thinking about that dog. Like what happens now? And I went back that week and one thing led to another and and I became really interested in why this agency ran the way it did. I, you know, I, I sort of almost started with a public sector. What is this? Uh, more than again, like a heartstrings thing, but very quickly turned into that. So uh, from there on, it was starting local nonprofits to help get spay-neuter resources to folks, lobbying city council to improve funding and staffing and policy at the animal shelter. And I really sort of became uh, like a community lobbyist through my own citizen advocacy. And just after several years of that, I decided that's what I really wanted to be doing all the time. Wow. So what was that transition like? You're kind of in one world, corporate consulting, lucrative career. But then you're fascinated by kind of the story with this dog and kind of opens up this whole other world to you that you probably didn't even see coming. Mm-hmm. What was that transition like? Uh, I imagine it was pretty scary, but what was it like to kind of transition from one world to the other? You know, I don't recall thinking about it too hard. So I can tell you that, like mm-hmm. sometimes we overthink our, you know, ourselves in these situations and, and sometimes you just have to jump and kind of follow your instincts on it. Um, I, I had pretty purposefully um, maintained a simpler lifestyle. I had like bought a house, but it was well within my means. I had paid off my student loans. I didn't have children. You know, at that point in my life, I was turning 30 and I was living a lifestyle that was lower than my means. And frankly, I'd, I'd done a few things with some of that money. Anyway, I bought a baby grand piano. Mm-hmm. I bought a decent car, not a crazy car, but a decent car. And like, I didn't, get as much long-term satisfaction out of those as I thought like going in like it felt it felt like exciting to be able to to buy those things for myself and then they kind of my enthusiasm for them petered out and so I'd been checking in with myself I read a book at the time too called The Overspent American by Juliet Shore about kind of consumerism and and that had a pretty big impact on me at the time and I really just thought I don't know that making all this money is what is going to make me happy it wasn't making me happy. I wasn't unhappy, but I wasn't fulfilled. I, I knew that. And so, um, and because of the ebb and flow of my work, when things were quiet, you know, you, what would happen in a, in a litigation context is you work 80 plus hour weeks and then a settlement conversation starts and the experts get shut down, like stop working, like on a dime, like boom, stop, because they don't want to pay your hourly <laughs> rates if they're going to settle. And so it would just be these screeching halts. And I, and I filled those spaces 
with this work. And I was very encouraged by my company to do that. But then I just started getting resentful when the work started picking back up. (laughs) So, I mean, I guess I would just say I saw there was an opportunity locally. Someone was like a small nonprofit animal group that did disaster relief was looking for like a program and communications director. And one of my epiphanies was that my resume did not look like a person even qualified for that job. So even though I made a, a lot more money, if you just looked at my education and my job experience, I didn't even look qualified for that job. And, Mm. but what I did, I reworked my resume as an experience-based resume. And I rewrote all of these experiences I had gained through my citizen advocacy and realizing like, just because no one paid me to do those didn't mean I hadn't learned how to build websites, write press releases, do coalition building, like Mm. lobbying. I actually had gained all those skills. They just were showing up under other (laughs) at the bottom of my, resume. So anyway, I I would say that uh, I did not spend very much time agonizing over this decision. Part of it, I jumped with a net, right? I left my company on very good terms. There was an office pool about how long till I asked for my job back. They gave me, they gave me my Herman Miller Aeron chair so I could like be comfortable in my crappy nonprofit office. Um, and so there were like, I just knew I left, you know, and that's one of the things I actually is a hallmark throughout my career as I made transitions. I never waited until things like I was truly unhappy or people were glad I was leaving <laughs> or that kind of thing. I always left on good terms and it didn't feel risky to me because the worst case scenario was I could return. Um, so why not go try this and see what happens? Sure. Did you have a, an opinion as kind of an outsider starting off of lobbyists? And if so, has that changed at all since you've gotten into this field? Yeah, well, I mean, I think to realize what a lobbyist is, first and foremost, it's what the law in the state of California says it is, right? Mm-hmm. It's a person who is compensated at more than $2,000 in any given calendar month or who spends more than 30% of their time trying to directly influence, you know, state policy. So that's what makes someone a lobbyist, right? You're being compensated at that, at least at that level in order to be, you know, persuasive in the public policy realm. Yeah, I haven't always liked showing up saying, hi, I'm Jennifer, I'm a lobbyist. Uh, I feel that does come with a certain amount of, um, of baggage. But I've learned over the years, particularly as I've become really zealous in persuading nonprofits that they need to be maximizing what the law affords them in terms of their ability to lobby. There's so much misinformation in the nonprofit sector that we're, quote, not allowed to lobby that I've really come to embrace the word, own the word. I'm a pusher um, of advocacy because too many groups are conflating, you know, political kind of campaign electioneering activity with lobbying, and they're sorely missing out on this super important, like, opportunities to influence how the state spends all of our, you know, budget resources or decisions on, you know, laws that directly affect either their mission or the function, you know, their 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 function as an organization. And so I've come to really um, embrace using that, and, and certainly the public's impression of them and mine was these are pay to play mercenary types who, you know, um, give a shit about, excuse my French, about what they're working on, just like willing to um, get paid to advance anybody's cause. And A, that's certainly not my model, but B, that's not a lot of lobbyists. There's more, far more nuance to Mm -hmm. the decisions they're making about who they choose to represent. Um, Uh, What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Well, for, for, for lobbying and advocacy purposes, not, not necessarily for life lessons, uh, 
about a decade ago, a friend of mine who's a consultant told me of an adage that she used. Anytime a like piece of information, you know, kind of comes at her and she's contemplating um, what to do with that information. She says, I always ask myself the question, is this interesting or is it actionable? Hmm. And I pretty much think that question a dozen or more times a day, hmm. either instinctively or very like a very front brain. I'm really aware of asking that question. And from a strategy perspective, you know, lots of stuff is interesting. <laughs> Full page ads in the paper by an opponent. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, you know, a mean tweet is interesting. And it's, it's what are the pros and cons of reacting to it? Um, do you, you know, feed that? Do you give it oxygen? Would anyone have seen it if you hadn't amplified it? Or is it in the context of lobbying? Is this going to cost me any votes? And is this reacting to it? gonna help me and so Mm. this interesting versus actionable has become this like paradigm for me that's like um gold that's awesome that's really interesting i think we could all use a little bit more of that in our lives (laughs) i certainly did hold back sometimes just a hold back on those things that are just interesting like keep your powder dry and (laughs) and live to fight another day well it seems like you've brought a a very unique style i i my traditional uh prototypical lobbyist would be the older white guy in a dark suit. He comes in and it doesn't really matter what's said in a meeting because his client has already given thousands of dollars to the campaigns of the people they need. It seems like you've taken a very uh, different tack. You can tell me if any of these are wrong, but I think I remember when you were working on the shark fin soup uh, ban, you you brought uh, a bunch of puppies or dogs to the Capitol all wearing shark fins. And it maybe didn't have that much to do with the bill, but it certainly grabbed people's attention. And uh, I think there were plush toys of turtles and nets and various other uh, uh, stunts, uh, if I can use the word. Uh, How have you kind of uh, found your own voice and and kind of forged your own path? Because that's not what I think of when I think of lobbying. (laughs) I have joked that someday I just want to start like, yeah, a, a st- an advocacy stunts um, and gimmicks um, shop. I, I guess I'm already running one. Um, <laughs> but um, there were 3,000 bills, you know, introduced here this year. And and many of them, you know, the proponents or the opponents are well-financed, um, you know, operations and that maybe don't by law, like um, they're not prohibited from engaging in campaign finance. I, none of my clients make campaign um, contributions. I don't even want that near my space. Um, in part, like I don't spend any time dealing, like taking, fielding phone calls, you know, fundraising phone calls from candidates. That's so, that's just more time I have available for other work. But, you know, I think when you're on the the good guy side, when you're on the right side of things. I mean, I think in some ways the money lobbyists, they need money. Like no one's picking up the phone for Chevron and yeah. calling in from the district to say, oh, please protect the big oil company. Right. Um, so that side of things often needs the corporate side, needs to work the campaign finance side because they don't have the public with them. They don't have constituents with them. Their polling doesn't look great unless they're being somewhat manipulative in <laughs> how they're describing their situation. And so, yeah, but... It's also about getting on people's radars and getting attention and standing out. And I've worked really hard. And in some cases, it's cute. You know, I joke with the stuffed animals. I'm like, I only have one trick, but it's a good one. (laughs) Um, um, So it sounds like maybe your creativity, ingenuity, what have you, is maybe able to supplant other folks' money in, in a way. I mean, I do think I flummox them. 
Uh, it is interesting. I do think that even though I've been around now for about a decade doing mm -hmm. this, I still think I confound more traditional um, yeah. lobbyists. I think they're like, what? And I, I have one of the secrets of mine is that I have cultivated such long relationships with so many staffers in the building who a lot of them have a soft spot for animals or a soft spot for the right thing happening. And they have been confidential sources to me and I've protected them. But I, there are, there's one member in particular I'm thinking about that whenever he introduces me to other people, he like, this is Jennifer. She's in the CIA. Like, he's like, I just think about the word kangaroo and she shows up. <laughs> But that's because I have like a wide network of people like who are interested in what I'm interested in and who have trust. I mean, I think a core to lobbying, you know, being a good lobbyist is trust, is having, is building networks and relationships with people, never burning people. And mm -hmm. then very carefully for me using with my, my social media um, voice, very carefully calibrated sticks and carrots, right? Far fewer sticks than carrots, but, you know, praising folks who are, um, supportive or voting for things that I'm trying to advance shared with a little zinger on Twitter every now and yeah. then then gets their attention immediately. <laughs> well, it, seems like, it seems like attention is one of the things that you're sort of fighting for in a sense because we live mm -hmm. in this day and age where um, everyone's attention spans are shorter. We're just being bombarded with so much information on social media, on TV. And so the ability to cut through the noise and have a really clear message around what you're standing for, particularly when your opponents might be well-financed corporations that are I, on the other I side of the battle. Cleverness that's, and that's, creativity yeah. are underrated. I, I like literally posted a Facebook post and a Twitter post saying, hey, we have this like crazy idea for Corgi Shark video. If you've got a Corgi, <laughs> literally nine Corgis showed up at the Capitol within five hours of that post. Like that, I was like, dude, I have a sweet Corgi network. I had no idea. You know, we took Sutter Brown on barnstorming on the campaign for Prop 30. Literally, he was given the key to the city of Chico by the mayor on live television. You know, 35 corgis that are part of a meetup in San Diego showed up at an event there. Um, more media came to that than Michelle Obama's visit to San Diego the week prior. Wow. The entire LA Times ed board like got down on the ground in their conference room when Sutter came in. I mean, he, uh, the power of celebrity added to animals, added to corgis are just like the most memeable thing there is. But even I, who uh, was regularly shocked kind of at the phenomenon, like that dog in particular was, but like we had during the um, hounding ban, there were these very, very angry um, uh, hunting dog breeders who one, one of whom kept calling the, the state senator's office and um, talking about how we've eliminated the value for his puppies. And basically the final straw he called and said he was going to put them all in a bag with a brick and drop them in the Yuba River. And I was standing nearby when the staffer took this call and I was like, I'd like to talk to this person. And I said, hey, my name is Jennifer. I'm with the Humane Society. Um, so I was very clear like who I was. I was like, I do puppy rescue on the side. I will happily take those puppies. He goes, fine. And I met him. I drove up to you, but I brought like a dude with me um, and we went off some weird road and he handed me this box of these like six little plot hound puppies and, and you know, a lot of curse words and a lot of anger, but I came back and oh my God, we named one Jerry Brown. We named one Daryl Steinberg, who was president pro tem. And I still see Jerry Brown, my friend, Jonathan Arambel, he and his wife, Irene Ho adopted um, Jerry Brown, the puppy. And they kept him, they kept that his name, JB. So it, it was always interesting to me. Each one of those, it like starts as a stunt 
but it actually deepens relationship. It's just it's part of, I think, the secret to the success that I've had is being open, you know, and authentic, right, yeah. about where these things go. Stunts don't work, I don't think, unless you're, like, all the way yeah, to them. There needs to be a kernel of truth and, like, a deeper thing underneath yeah. it that's going to make it work. Now, this question is coming from a place of ignorance because I, look, I live and work in Silicon Valley and tech. I'm a little bit far from the world of Sacramento and the capital and, and politics, but... Is it helpful when you're in these issue-oriented battles to, to seek out the very best uh, version of your opponent's argument, either to make it up yourself so that you can kind of know what you're, what you're fighting against, or even to go find the person, maybe it's not your direct opponent, but find another issue expert that really articulates the opponent's view really well? Is that an exercise that's helpful for you in, in the world of lobbying? I definitely think, and I see unforced errors by my opponents too often who kind of write a really silly script about what I'm working on. And because they're wrong, they have their strategy. They come at it wrong. So I've, I've definitely, because I've been on the receiving side of that, I'm, yeah. I do, I don't shirk early on. I, even before we, we would do a bill, I really want to know what are going to be most compelling totally. arguments. And uh, one of my funny ways that I... Um, shortcut this and I've told her this so I can tell you this but I, I there's an editor at the LA Times who um she's with us on like on, on, particularly on animal issues like but her board I mean the way the process works there is she has to go and pitch the idea to the, get the whole ed board and she asks me so many questions mm. I mean we spend hours on a variety of issues that like I've started to call her, I joke to her, I call you early now. Like I'm not even sure I want you to editorialize at the time that I call you. I know I'm ready to get put through my paces though. I like uh -huh. use this like deep dive that she does with me every time. It, mm -hmm. I'm so much smarter and better oh, totally. like on the backside of that. Because she's like, putting on the opponent's jersey for a little bit and she's really she's putting you through the paces. She knows what she's going to like spar right. with her colleagues on and what they're really going to push on. And, and it's actually a cool space because I don't know with her it's okay can be like, I will get back to you. Like I can then go costlessly take the time, yeah. you know, that it takes. I'm not saying I don't know to someone who needs to vote on it. I'm saying no to an ally mm -hmm. who's donning this deep inquiry, you know, yeah. deep investigative kind of approach to it. And so it's kind of this safe space for me to figure out all these things and then get the time I need to go find the right answer. So, sure. um, so I've, I, you know, you use what you got to help figure that no, out, absolutely. but I totally, I see that again. This is a mistake I see my opponents make with me. I saw it once. I saw it this year. They just want to kind of thug and muscle something through. Sure. They're not really interested in an actual conversation about what's going on. And I'm like, and they'll, really? And they'll straw man your side of the argument and probably present a cartoonish version, which maybe one times out of ten that will work. But over the long run, if you're playing the long game and if you're trying to build yeah. reputation, build trust, like you said, you need to actually uh, have the facts on your side and have a really well crafted argument that's going to win public support, right. any other support that you need a support from, obviously. I think sometimes uh, going back to your question about lobbyists is like, are you the kind of lobbyist that's going to invest yourself in understanding the actual arguments yeah. of the policy that you're working on? Or do you just sort of cruise on the, like my, my clients give cash? Um, mm -hmm. And I think I, part of I, why I spook some of those lobbyists, they're not ready to have that conversation. I'm like, oh, I'm all the way in the weeds on this. Like, you ready? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not like a paid gun. I literally think about this all the time. So yeah. good luck beating me. One of the things that you said that I think is interesting, and maybe we've stumbled on a, a paradox here, uh, lobbyists, again, going back to kind of public perception, we think of very slick, maybe fast and loose with the truth, but working in uh, 
the legislature and in public policy. I know that there are lobbyists who have have burned me. Maybe we're a little too loose with with the truth, or maybe we're just trying to spin us too much. Though I wouldn't even take a meeting with. And so maybe in the very short term, you can get a bill out of one committee. In the long term, it is honesty that really makes it. I feel like you're right. I don't feel like that whole trust violation catches up with people fast enough around here really? for my taste. But yeah. I, I'm, I'm amazed sometimes. I'm like, why is that still working mm-hmm. for person X, Y, or Z? I don't, I don't get it. Um, I, but I'm with you. you no, know, with the thousands of bills. I mean, my goal has been to become a proxy for good judgment, right? Mm-hmm. Members do and staff do not have time to talk about everything. So I will get calls and be like. Jennifer, where are you on this? And I don't even know that they're imagining who I'm speaking for, like who my clients are at that point. They're just like, are you familiar with this bill? And I say, yes. And they're like, good or bad. And and they know I am going to give them an answer that's as honest as I know it to be, recognizing and I'm going to declare my interest if I have one in it as well right up front. But I also have tried, and I think a very good lobbyist is one that – we only need 41, 21 in a signature. And that was like the alternate possible name for my firm was 41, 21 in a signature. I thought about having But that means that sometimes like I'll, I'll, when I get asked by a particular uh, legislator or staff on something, if I actually don't think I need their vote on that, and I, I and I, but this is someone who I think sh- long term for the issues I care about is important to still be here. Um, I will, I, I will not hesitate to be like, you should walk on this, um, or, or you know, there is a change. You should propose this change, you know. But I end up having much more abbreviated conversations sometimes relative to how interested in something I am because people were like, that's cool. We trust you. Like we trust your judgment. If you're good with this, sure. we'll go up on it. And, so, and that trust is a way of expediting the process because they're sort of a mile wide and an inch deep on a number of different yeah, issues. Yeah, and they're going to just like, two. oh, that's one of those issues? The, I'm going to check the Jennifer box and move on. Like, yeah. um, And so I that is a challenge to me to like never waver. You know, like I really feel like I will, I can't ever take a shortcut. You know, like I've now staked my reputation entirely on always being on the good guy side, always being honest and candid and trying to steer people, you know, in a way that I think is right for the issue and right for them. And I can't fall prey to any temptation. And I think if there's lobbyists who try to work, you know, try to deal with me, sometimes they try to bait me onto the low road. And I have to constantly, you know, kind of check myself and be like, that would be a mistake. And um, you don't have to be specific, <laughs> but just a follow-up question. At, what does the low road kind of look like? What's kind of the framework that you use to say, that's out of bounds for me. I'm, I'm not going to go there. Personal attacks. Sure. Um, uh, uh, ad hominem type type arguments. Um, uh, deals. I don't love deals. It's one thing to make a deal within the context of a single bill and like on a single policy area to say, well, maybe we could give a little on the penalty and take a little from the what like I got on like cross bill deal making. Yeah. Like I'm uncomfortable with that. Even, you know, obviously vote trading is itself illegal for members, but it's not illegal. Right. For others. I'm uncomfortable with it, um, especially when I think it's not coming from a like a sensible place or oh, those are related in real the real terms. So maybe we can do that. So I've had lobbyists come to me and say, what it will drop our opposition to this totally unrelated bill because we have a client. If you can find us a path in this other one, I'd be like, dude, two conversations. No. Um, and I'm trying to think what another another example of 
um, the low road. Mostly I worry that people are, because animal issues are emotional, um, I think sometimes people try to bait me into being emotional or into making emotional arguments. And I, I think emotion belongs in public policy personally. I think if everything could be decided by science, then what are we all doing? So I resist the argument that, that there shouldn't be morals involved in this conversation. Um, I also love the slippery slope argument because people, when I, A, I know I'm winning when that's the best someone has is like, it's a slippery slope. And B, I'm like, yeah, dude, it's slippery. I still want more. Like, uh-huh. I, like is the world totally humane? <laughs> nope, I'll be back. <laughs> and so I, uh, I, I also think for me, just given the style that I've created, a, a low road would be to like, get weary, you know, to actually not be fearless in the face of like a fight to wither. Um, I don't think I can really afford to do that anymore. Some of the, the stranger situations that have come from being in my own firm are things a couple years ago, there was a bill that labor was running would really deeply affect um, county contracting. And I understood and appreciated and supported their goal with that, which is to stop having public sector jobs get contracted out in order to avoid paying benefits, pensions, you know, at the prevailing wages that were negotiated by unions with local governments. Mm -hmm. The problem was the way they went about that bill or the way that bill would have worked would have probably made it impossible for any nonprofit to contract with local governments going forward. And that was tricky because it kind of forced me to like, I needed to stand up for nonprofits um, against an ally kind of in the progressive lane. Um, and I, you know, we, we went about it and like we didn't join kind of the local government f- frame on it. We chose our own, like chose to walk our own path on that and say, we, we support this objective, but this can, this has to be done in a way that allows nonprofits to provide services to communities. And we don't want to be chosen because we're cheaper. We don't want to be chosen because we're willing to work for less <laughs> than local government. So if there's a way to do this, that, that doesn't, you know, but I think it's complicated. Um, but it, it's been, that's, those are the spaces where I've found myself now more like, whoa, good guys on all sides. <laughs> but it seems like as a society, that's very healthy. We, we need more of people that are potentially on similar pages and similar sets of issues to be willing to hash out pretty complex, nuanced stuff. Um, and I'm sure yeah, not get put in a box, right? Like, yeah. look, we stood with you on minimum wage. We stand with you. Like, you can, we, we, we really do support the values you're after here, but like the mechanics of how we're going to go about it, it can't, it can't have these side effects. Like, that would be bad for society, mm-hmm. you know, to gain this for you at this loss. So, how do you, right. we, how can we sort through this so that we don't compromise one good for another? Right. Mm. If I can uh, transition a little bit, uh, I've, I believe you're a vegan and I've seen uh, on Twitter you're promoting something recently called Meatless Mondays. Can you kind of tell us what that's all about? And um, I'd also just be interested generally as a dabbling vegan and kind of what your pitch is for for veganism and kind of how you uh, would describe that to folks who maybe think it's a, a little weird or still not for them. Well, I actually think going vegan is the only thing I ever did before it was cool. Um, uh, it feels pretty cool these days. Uh, it didn't always feel that way. Um, yeah, so for about the last 20 years, I have uh, not eaten um, uh, any animal products or worn any animal products as an ethical decision that I made that clearly came out of my um, education that I got by exposing myself to the realities of those 
industries and what's involved with, you know, animals when they may have a price on them. It, it's a lot of exploitation and suffering. And so it seemed pretty easy actually to live my life without contributing to that. And so something that over time I've become more willing to be outspoken about, but it is something that's been important to me to be mainstreamed by just living it, by just doing it, by going out to eat with everybody and eating everywhere and just, you know, ordering what I want to eat and not imposing kind of that on others, but just making it really obvious that it's a, it's a relatively simple choice that does not socially ostracize you, like has been kind of important to me in terms of as a way of promoting it. But, but more recently, Yes, the speaker, um, Anthony Rundin, is a big advocate. Uh, he likes the Meatless Monday approach and agreed a couple of years ago. We did a little uh, potluck in his office and invited folks in the Capitol. And then it got uh, elevated this year. The um, Golden One Arena wanted to be the first NBA uh, uh, arena in the country to promote um, plant-based food options. So we did a big Meatless Monday kickoff there. And Phil Horn, who was the VP of marketing and ticket sales there, has left. He started Burger Patch, which is oh, yeah. this cool new little plant-based kind of steak and shake type model um, at 23rd and K. It's just really kind of taken off. Um, and yeah, and the Impossible and the Beyond Meat IPOs, a lot of like attention, including financial attention around, are these plant-based meats going to be commercially viable? Can they reach parity or even become cheaper than, than meat? I know that meat's subsidized. That's a, probably another political yep. um, hot button. One question I have actually as a full disclosure, I am a, I'm a meat eater, but I like to consider myself a somewhat open-minded one. It seems like the tactics around this can be kind of one of two different things. And you mentioned going out to eat and just doing your thing. And I really respect that. To me, that's very appealing, even though I'm maybe on the other side of the issue currently. I think that that's impressive when anybody just puts their money where their mouth is. So how do you think about tactically? I have a friend who's a, who's a vegan and I've debated this with him a little bit. Sometimes on Facebook, he'll post kind of these shock and awe videos, which are powerful. I mean, they're very, very emotive. Um, but then sometimes he and I will have a conversation and he'll just talk about some of the benefits of veganism. And I find myself saying, you know, I'd be very open to doing a meatless Monday thing or cutting back. And I find myself much more amenable to the second approach versus oh, yeah. the first. So how do you think about that? I, I am, I am 100% in the kind of reducitarian camp. Most people are not cold Turkey people. I didn't go vegan overnight. Like it was a process. I also, I also think a lot of people out of an unwillingness or a fear of making a binary decision like that do yeah. almost nothing as in, in as an option. They're and letting the perfect get in the way of the gift. Yeah, and, and they think they don't get any credit, particularly from the vegans. Um, right. And I think you vote at every meal. You can make a decision every time you sit down to eat, um, to eat lower, kind of on the food chain. And I... And I think it's getting easier and easier for people to feel like it's not so much of a sacrifice because there's more options everywhere. Um, and as you described, like what's going on with the plant-based burger, it's become, you know, all the rage. And I think the reason that that money is behind those products is because the animal protein companies and the investors in them are looking down the pike. And from a future standpoint, I mean, the impact on climate of uh, the growing need to feed way more people, um, we simply are on an unsustainable course. Forget the ethics, forget the health, forget all that. And just feeding all these people and the resource constraints that we have and the warming planet, those reasons alone are enough to, that's why the market is kind of moving in that direction. But I do know from my years at Humane Society and kind of our work around campaigning, you know, really actively promoting um, eating fewer animals, that the kind of three R's, the like reduce the number, refine the practices and re replace um, mm -hmm. them with alternatives 
is is from a campaigner's perspective, yeah. kind of the toolkit. You put all those things out there. Um, but I would also I would also say what we've learned is that um, far more people are tempted or will start um, eating fewer animals for health and diet reasons. Totally. But they won't stick with it if an ethical kind of overlay doesn't come. I can see in my own life how the ethical framework around it is far more is far more compelling and keeps me kind of in a healthier place than the than the sort of uh, health component to it. But yeah. you know, I uh, think we need to welcome every decision everyone makes, um, and, and that's not this would this would extend beyond eating practices. Right. I think generally in the space of doing good in the world, we should always be encouraged to do totally. whatever good next thing we can do. Yeah, I think <laughs> encouraging people and bringing them along for your journey and explaining your viewpoint is so much better than canceling and shaming people that don't at the moment or, hold you. If you want people to change, right, you have to bring them or along. Or feeling paralyzed by, by, by despair. You know, I really struggle with the homelessness issues here in Sacramento, but I'm not a social worker. I'm not an expert in this. Mm-hmm. I, I'm confused as anybody else about, should I do this or should I do that? But... I, I did a little homework and like I just walk around with $5 Starbucks cards and I want to be human with people mm-hmm. in our community. And so I want to have a personal interaction with them. And if all I can do for them in my busy life is buy them coffee and a and a bagel or whatever, yeah, then I'm going to do it. Um, but I know I'm not solving homelessness with that. But I think maintaining our dignity and our humanity as we struggle through big problems and again, not doing nothing because sure. I don't know how to because solve it. Because the bigger it. issue is yeah. so hard to solve. I mean, that's a really good segue into to my next question, which is we talked about animal issues and veganism, a little bit about climate change and now homelessness. What are some of these these issues outside of particularly the, the animal issues that are coming on the horizon that you're really focused on, that you're kind of maybe researching or reading about or or just becoming more passionate about kind of in, a, in an emerging sense versus uh, some of the stuff you've already worked on a lot? So I read a book last fall that then caused me to read a whole bunch of other books, and now I'm obsessed with the authors of these books on Twitter, but um, there's a book called um, Winner Take All, The Elite Charade of Saving the World by Anand Haradas, and another book called Decolonizing Wealth, and another book called Just Giving, and I've become very, very interested in the degree to which kind of elites and philanthropy work towards reputation laundering and how the only kinds of social change we're allowed to have are the ones that are a win-win, you know, for businesses. And I'm was probably particularly taken with this because I had come from this corporate, like I've written PowerPoint presentations around animals because I had, you know, come from being an economist. And so I really thought this kind of idea of like the, oh, we can do what's good for animals and good for the economy. Like I was all bit bought in full on. Like the double bottom line. Oh, all this, yeah. And these books just blew the lid off that for me. And, um, have really kind of galvanized me personally. And then it, and it bleeds in. Um, Cal Nonprofits, who I work with, ha, has a bill um, that didn't move this year, but we're still working on it to bring more sunlight into the world of donor advised funds, which is this charitable vehicle where a whole bunch of wealth is getting stockpiled and people are getting tax deductions. It's not going to charitable good. And the degree to which the people doing the harm, like Googles of the world that ruined journalism, like a $50 million gift to a journalism school does not erase <laughs> that, that and like just stop doing the harm. Um, start start there. Winner take all was uh, equally impactful for me. I, I think my mom gave it to me for Christmas and it sat on the shelf for six months and I picked it up and couldn't put it down. Um, I think UBI, we, I, just last night I was talking about this with some friends at dinner. It's a great example. The universal basic income mm-hmm. seems like a great and kind of noble goal 
But it seems like as you peel back the layers, why is Silicon Valley pushing it so hard? And it seems like, well, we've supplanted millions of jobs or we plan to. Anything else we've shipped overseas or we've um, monopolized in a very select group of people. So now we want the government to come spend trillions of dollars to cure all the ills that we've maybe created. And that's an over overgeneralization, but uh, it definitely... I think made me think about things a lot differently. And just to build on that with the UBI thing, and I know that Andrew Yang is pushing this in the Democrat primary, then you start to ask the question like, okay, so why are we giving a thousand dollars a month or whatever the arbitrary number is to people that are already well off? Like, wouldn't you just means test it and it, become, it kind of comes back to more of like a social welfare program? The other thing on UBI that's kind of interesting is it seems like the premise for that discussion is that we have all this automation that's happening. And I've really been asking the question, is that automation really happening? Because there's a lot of jobs in our economy, particularly in the service sector, that seem pretty resistant and resilient to automation. You just like cannot automate them. And I know we're, we're hearing a lot, especially with the Uber legislation, self-driving vehicles and all that stuff, which still is, it's always around the corner, but it hasn't quite materialized. I wonder if the automated world that we're saying is here has actually even arrived at all. Well, I just heard World Affairs Council last week had a guy, I won't remember his name, talking about how how the service sector, it's not happening in a really overt way, but it's coming in dribs and drabs. It's like someone in Bangladesh will do your scheduling um, for 50 bucks or your website tinkering and that like the service sector is going to wake up and be like, what happened? Because little tiny bits of it were getting kind of fractured off and they're might not being automated, but they're being exported and people are being paid, you know, people who are not protected by, you know, employment laws or, you know, uh, under certain you know tax obligations in the United States. That stuff's just starting to like dissipate and we're going to catch it too late because it's happening one service type at a time. So... Yeah, no, I, um, this is why I am for Elizabeth Warren for president. Like, I really think she has the strongest grasp of this big challenge of our day, which I think is the power that a very small number of very wealthy people and very big companies have. And until we get like some trust busting back into like, (laughs) um, our, our, some good old fashioned Teddy Roosevelt trust busting. Yep. Well, thank you for the Elizabeth Warren plug. Yes. <laughs> my, my parents will probably start listening to this podcast now, so that, that's very and, helpful. And not to overly reference Twitter, I think we just follow each other, so I'm excited to follow your your, your, your Twitter thread. Uh, stupidly, I was putting out 2020 predictions. I think I had a tweet last week, and I was predicting that I do think Elizabeth Warren is going to win. Um, the next thing that I tweeted was that I thought Trump would narrowly win re-election, maybe lose the popular vote. I mean, again, this is just me pontificating on Twitter, which is often very stupid. But I, I do actually think that she's uh, got a good chance of winning because I think the energy is on that side of the party. I think uh, I, I personally disagree with her probably on most issues, but she's very articulate at articulating that side. Bernie Sanders, I think, is kind of the anger old white version of that. And I don't, I'm guessing that's not going to particularly do well in the party. And I think Kamala's had some missteps here and there. So I think she's got a very good chance of winning Polls are looking good in Iowa. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if that's the, the, the battle of 2020 is Warren versus Trump. Well, with that, we want to be uh, respectful of your time. So uh, we're going to go to these kind of rapid fire questions we ask every guest and uh, do with them what you will, because uh, there's there's no wrong answer here. So what's something you believe that most people don't? Well, I just gave it away. Um, I think increasingly I believe in a moral obligation to to be a traitor to your class, like a moral obligation to um, check your privilege and um, and to be far more generous 
um, with your time, talents, and treasures mm -hmm. to others. And I know a lot of people believe that that's a good thing to do. I increasingly believe it's a fundamental obligation. And what's a problem you're concerned about that you don't think is getting enough attention or that other people aren't as concerned about? Okay, I don't have one answer, but I wrote down a few <laughs> in thinking about this. <laughs> that great mass extinction that we are undergoing, I think gets far too little attention and I'm deeply, deeply worried about what its implications are for collapse of ecosystems and our ability to thrive on a planet that has extinctions at that rate. Relatedly, Something we just talked about that, but um, I'm I'm much more concerned. Um, I think than than most others are in the degree to which elites and philanthropy are controlling social change. Very interesting. And then finally, uh, a problem that you think people are too concerned about that you think is maybe overblown. I would love to have thought of something funny. I tried so hard to think of something funny for this, but what I I thought about was sort of anything related to vanity. Um, anything related to what you're wearing. <laughs> what you're the, the Instagram <laughs> culture that we live in where everything's very curated and filtered. And yeah, you see like one. what people are up to and what they're wearing and what yeah. they're eating. I feel like we're paying far more attention to that and to something we talked about as you guys were walking in, um, that we're far more concerned with sort of what we put out to like yeah. this universe of people who are friends, quote unquote, versus the a time and attention that we're putting into meaningfully connecting with people that matter to us. Yeah. I think you can actually even take that to a personal level. We are concerned individually with the perception of what we're putting out into the world. We're kind of very, very perception focused. Mm -hmm. It's almost like our social media presence can be sort of these little Tamagotchis that you're trying to feed right. you know, digitally. And uh, and that's kind of like a, an interesting... I want to give a nod. Um, highly recommend Lori Santos's class on Coursera. Um, she's a Yale professor and the class is the science of well-being and happiness total like life-altering information sort of science-based information about how all of our notions about what will really lead to happiness are wrong and then what science mm -hmm. says about what we ought to be pursuing so very That's free a it's a free class oh, very I recommend. Cool. <laughs> well Jennifer this was a really fascinating discussion we appreciate your time uh, if folks want to learn more about what you're doing and connect with you what's the best way for them to do that Sure, I sort of have like an online brochure website. That's really all it is at fearlessadvocacy.com, but I'm probably most active in a public way on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, so happy to uh, interact there. And I love for people to put provocative reading um, and class material stuff in front of me. I'm a very curious person. So That's great. Love to connect. And is it at Jennifer Fearing? Yep, it's at Jennifer Fearing. Perfect. Awesome. Great. Thanks well, so much for your time. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks, guys. That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Tibbetts and at Mr. Alex Khan. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself.